0: Welcome to the Pink Smoke Podcast. I'm your host, John Cribbs, and this is part two of James Bond Films in the 1980s with our very special guest, Mr. John Arminio.
1: Evening, John. Hello, Mr. Cribbs. It's great to be back and always an honor to, to be on the podcast with you. Always an honor to have you, and
0: uh, I was a little, (laughs) I lied to everyone last time when I made it sound like a spontaneous decision to split the 80s in two, Um, it was actually your uh, suggestion because we wanted to focus on an actor who I think over the years has been kind of unjustly dragged through the mud, uh, very strangely kind of the butt of jokes, even on great shows like Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I remember in Entertainment Weekly, anytime they do a special Bond issue, which they would do pretty much anytime there was a new movie, there were always two or three Timothy Dalton cracks in it. That drove me nuts. Like I didn't understand why it was just this universally acknowledged thing that he was the weakest Bond and he had to be the whipping boy for the series. Um, it It never made any sense to me personally.
1: Yeah, me neither. I had always heard uh, that he was the worst Bond, that his Bonds were terrible and unsmiling and not any fun. But then, you know, I actually watched them and I had a great time. I I think he's a great actor. I think he's great in the role. And I think just like when Roger Moore took over for Sean Connery, you needed sort of a drastic shift in tone and in style of performance to go into the next generation because you can't – ape somebody like Roger Moore, just like Roger Moore couldn't ape Sean Connery, just wouldn't have worked. And frankly, I think Timothy Dalton is the closest Bond to Ian Fleming's version of the character. I think I love Daniel Craig, but I think he wears his emotions much more on his sleeve than the literary version of Bond does. And and I think the sort of simmering, like, Glow of anger that you see under the surface of Dalton is very much um, true to Ian Fleming's character. I agree entirely,
0: and that criticism in particular is one I've never understood. Especially after Daniel Craig took over the role, and it wasn't just Craig, but it was the entire series that took this turn into very serious—you know, we're not messing around here, folks—kind of territory. Um, Which, for me, you know, and this kind of. I guess, uh, jump in the gun here from when we talk about the Crick movie someday. But um, that to me seems so much more phony baloney than the Dalton take, which is very genuine. You know, I really do feel that Fleming touch in terms of Bond uh, not, ex- not particularly enjoying his job, I think is the big difference between Roger Moore, whereas Moore's, uh, you know, rebellious Bond was to kind of be flippant and not take mm-hmm. things too seriously. Um, he was still, you know, did what he was told. He's still like, you know, a good agent. For me, three words that Dalton says at the beginning of *Living Daylight* sum up his bond perfectly, which is "stuff my orders." Right? Yeah. When he takes it upon himself to um, fire at uh, at the Soviet sniper, the KGB sniper, and not kill her, um, that's that's his own initiative. He has orders to kill. And he doesn't care and that is something that's taken directly from the short story where the the, which the title is derived from um bond in the story basically tells the sanders character do you think i like doing this do you think i like being told to go and murder somebody from a window this is not you know my idea of a good time and throughout the whole story we understand that he's got this anxiety that's just building up at this thing that he knows he has to do um So I think that Dalton obviously read that story and took that to heart. And Dalton, more than any of the Bonds, I think, you can feel what he brought to the part, you know, that he really had a say in how this particular series of Bond was going to play out. And for me, that's, again, it's very genuine and something that you can really hang on to.
1: Yeah, there there was a moment in one of the short stories, I think it was in... um, Fear as only when, you know, uh, Bond and uh, Columbo storm, you know, a heroin factory. And in the aftermath of their, you know, all the bad guys are dead uh, and the chaos has settled down. Bond is alone in, um, in his cabin on, on a boat and smells like the, like the gunpowder on himself and like, and feels his adrenaline um, pumping, And instead of going off to celebrate with the rest of the men, he immediately puts his gun in a drawer where he can't see it, changes his clothes, showers and shaves, and then puts on you know, the, the suit and goes off and, and is able to perform as the suave secret agent. So he's, he's so uncomfortable and sort of disgusted with the act of murder that he has to physically cleanse himself of it before he can like, interact with other human beings again. And I think that that's something, that, like, Daniel Craig clearly taps into that sort of thing, but I think Timothy Dalton was the first actor to get at that sort of you know, psychological depth that Bond struggles with uh, when he's you know, killing people. And as we see you know, in, that, in that living daylight scene, he does his best to avoid unnecessary death.
0: Absolutely. And I think that on top of like the kind of contempt underneath that he kind of feels for Sanders and for the, mm-hmm. the kind of government, you know, agency that's pushing him around uh, and that kind of weariness that we see in Dalton on top of that, it's something that really enhances his humor in an interesting way too. And like when he's actually smiling, you know, when he's yeah. actually having a good time and he's actually with a woman who, he clearly is attracted to you feel that even more because you see this human side of him that is now that 's been stymied by all this government work that he 's had to do, all these um assignments that he 's been on, all the things that he 's seen when he actually can have a moment where he's human. I feel like with the Dalton bond, that expression just comes out so much more sincere than it does, even for Roger Moore, who you know obviously you have a good time when he 's having a good time, but for dalton it 's almost like. Appreciate it even more that he can have these moments where uh, he can be comfortable with himself, you know, and he can actually sit back and not be kind of uh, engaged in all these, you know, uh, government activities.
1: Yeah. And I, f- I feel like that's the interesting part about his relationship in the living daylights, because when he's lying to Karen Malovi about who he is, he's more, he's actually more himself uh, with his emotions than he is when he's the actual James Bond secret agent. So their, so their interplay has this layered um, you know, relationship where James Bond is lying to her, but he's being emotionally more honest with her than any other character. And I think that that's just a, a very engaging thing to watch.
0: Yeah. And when he sheds that too, when he finally comes clean with her, you can kind of feel his sense of relief, and you know that he wants wants to reach out to her and say, "Listen, you know, because of the government bullshit, I had to, you know, tell you this tale. But I am actually everything you've seen from me is genuine. Yeah. You know, yeah. I'm an actual person. Uh, so, okay, so let, so we like James, we like Timothy Dalton, we like the James Bond that he portrayed. Let's get into the Living Daylights in 1987, the one where Bond teams up with Bin Laden. Yeah." <laughs> <laughs> Um. So yeah, for me, for uh, Dalton was kind of my Bond in a way, you know, because um, License to Kill was the first one I saw in the theater. Uh, this was, you know, the era when I was seeing all the Bond films, going back and watching all the Bond films for the first time, and he was the Bond when that was happening. And it was, in retrospect, it was a, a short window, uh, but really it was almost it was practically eight years because technically he made Living Daylights in eighty seven and after License to Kill, uh, there was a six year, uh, drought of no bond, the longest uh, drought since it started. Uh, so he was sort of the intern bond during that time and right up to GoldenEye, I fully expected to see a third Timothy Dalton movie and was kind of shocked that we didn't get one, uh, because I wasn't thinking about in terms of, you know, box office and response. I was just thinking he's terrific and I would love to see another movie. Um, but Living Daylights, especially, uh, probably rivals Free Your Eyes Only as my my personal favorite Bond film because it's uh, it's a fun movie. It's it's one that it has enough confidence in itself that it doesn't need it doesn't need to lean on gimmick the way that a lot of Bond movies do. It's its own film entirely, and even though there's great scenes and fun time. And we've got pretty much the same crew as we've been dealing with throughout the 80s with John Glenn and his team. Uh, It's just a film that for a first, you know, for the to introduce a new Bond actor, I think has loads of confidence, just has just is very comfortable in itself. And that Timothy Dalton feels like a live like someone who's lived in that part longer than this, 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 this movie.
1: Yeah, and he even has a fantastic introduction. He's h- hanging off of a Gibraltar rock face, and he just kind of like turns the camera with his thick black hair blowing in the wind. He he, lo- he looks like a classical leading man, and he's ready to, you know, kill some bad guys. And yeah, he I gets think that it, glamour shot's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, I think it's the best Bond introduction since Connery and Dr. No. Um, and I th- I think especially that. Introduction is so important because he was treated so unfairly um, by the press leading up to this because, I, you know, the famous story of Pierce Brosnan being cast as Bond and then um, his contract being renewed for Remington Steel, meaning he couldn't do Bond. So that meant that everyone knew Timothy Dalton was second choice going up to this. And that's unfair for an actor. Um, Going into any role, especially one as public as this one, so I think it's to his credit and the credit of the production how entertaining and and you know action packed this uh, opening sequence is.
0: Yeah, although technically Dalton was the first choice because they did reach out to him uh, first, and he was mm-hmm. he was unavailable, and that's when they went to Brosnan, and it looked like he was going to get cast until. The Remington Steel producers totally <laughs> screwed that up. It's kind of ironic because the notoriety of him being cast at Bond where he's suddenly in the spotlight, is what made the Remington Steel people say, "Oh, yeah, hold on to this guy. Yeah. <laughs> if yeah. he's going to be a superstar." And then they cancel the show after six episodes. Oh, the irony! Um, Sam Neil was also screen tested for yeah. this movie, uh, and it's funny because I would say Sam Neil is. One of my very favorite actors i love sam neill uh a little bit as a person too he's just mm-hmm. such a great guy um and i've seen the screen test and uh, i could not see him as bond for me it did, didn't work but he kind of already played a version of bond have you seen this um miniseries riley ace of spies i have not i've heard of it but i have not seen it it's worth checking out it's very good he's great in it and it's funny because it's almost more the fleming Blond- uh the fleming bond in terms of his uh, complete scoundrel yeah. sort of behavior, you know. He's definitely a jaded agent who uh, can pretty much do anything you want him to do, but he is completely past it all. You know, mm-hmm. he's a lot more interested in just surviving and kind of taking care of himself than he is saving the world. You know, um, it's a great series though. But in terms of actually playing like a genuine bond, I think, and Sam Neil has said, you know, <laughs> subsequently. Uh, I don't think it would have worked. So I'm glad things turned out the way they did. And uh, just in terms of, you know, for Brosnan, I'm glad that it worked out for him to come in later and do the role that he obviously wanted to play. Um, so, yeah. So like I said, that opening scene that's taken directly from the story, Bond's been sent in to oversee the um, defection, supposed defection of a general from the KGB. Um And in uh, Czechoslovakia, and he's been asked to uh, shoot the sniper that's going to be, you know, taking the, well, to cover him basically as he's going across this, uh, this uh, stretch of um, stretch of street and Bond's got a very cool tuxedo that kind of zips into a black sniper coat, which is like such a subtle thing but I love it. You know, that's just the kind of thing that works so well in this movie. It's just this real quick thing that he does and suddenly he has this very cool completely black suit on for his
1: sniping uh, duties. Well, it has the best collection of dual-purpose tuxedos that they can <laughs> function as blank it function as a, a a wetsuit or um a repe- a repelling cable it's it's a fantastic set of gadgets but yeah th- this one also looks great it would be embarrassing if you brought the
0: wetsuit tuxedo to the sniper job you oh, know? Yeah. <laughs> i left my sniper rifle in my
1: other pants <laughs> uh
0: but the difference uh, uh so so this is pretty faithful to the story the setup uh the big difference and the, what they kind of the device that they use to turn into a feature film is that in the book it's an actually uh, the 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 sniper the kgb sniper whose name is trigger uh, is an actual KGB sniper sent to kill this guy. Um, she's only posing as a cellist for this orchestra, but in the story, which I think is a very smart way to do it, uh, as much as I like the idea that Bond decides he can't, he doesn't, he doesn't feel like shooting this woman, instead. he's just going to shoot the gun out of her hand and scare the living daylights out of her. As much as I like that idea kind of move it away from sort of the chauvinist aspect of that of like oh it's just a girl let me just shoot her and scare and she'll be too scared to do government stuff I like that this takes sort of the um, different stance which is that Bond instinctually can tell that she is no professional sniper you know that she is obviously a dupe she's a pawn and she's being used And so the reason he doesn't kill her is he knows that she's actually an innocent person who's been set up to take this fall and that again is just great characterization of the Dalton Bond, someone who has been given specific orders, but knows instinct, instinctively that you know some, something is up, and he's going to be the one to take uh, to take the initiative to uh, be on top of that. Because in the past, we've seen, of course, Spectres playing governments against each other, and Bond is set in to kind of investigate and figure out what's going on. But it's almost always, you know, he's got a lead where you know M has a has a bad feeling and so sends bond in. But the difference here is that Dalton's bond is the one who he himself knows something's going on. He's going to actually take action to figure out what it is.
1: Yeah. Um, and real quick, um, this defection plot in the movie that uh, Kara is sort of, being manipulated into facilitating uh, this was inspired by the 1985 defection of Vitaly sergeyevich Yurchenko uh, who later defected back to the ussr and so the the back and forth that koskov does was inspired by a real life events. so i think that's that's kind of interesting. like this cold war defection stuff that always fascinates me because the, the motivations behind any of those people knowing that it be a pretty awful life, no matter what happened. Once it got to the other side, I think it's just very interesting. Definitely, and especially in this very shaky
0: uh, period of the Cold War, late yeah. Cold War, when uh, people like Koskov can take advantage and you know say, "Oh, it's the Russians, and they have something up their sleeve." But it's really this complete, you know, this whole side thing that he has cooked up with his uh, collaborators to kind of play everybody against each other, and even set up uh, Kara to be killed when she's no longer any use to him. Uh, I mean, these. Uh, you know another criticism of this film is that you know the villain like who's the main villain like you know there's not really a classic um, sitting across the table stroking a cat Bond villain for him to come up against but I think it's terrific because these characters these bad guys are cowards you know they're guys who get other people to do their killing for them Um, they're you know they're functioning behind this curtain they're you know using these governments against each other and ultimately they're going to succeed because that's what real villains look like. You know, in the real world, they are people yeah. who use corporations and governments, uh, as fronts to do their, what they're going to do and do whatever they want to do. And you need someone like bond to take that whole thing apart, to take that operation and, and expose it for everybody
1: else. And I think, uh, your own crowd performance as Koskov is fantastic. Cause he's so like, uh, over the top in how much he seems he's cowardly and then enjoying himself and then indulging in you know, the extravagances of the capitalist West. Uh, and he's also playing a character who's playing a character. So he's playing into this guy who's defecting to the West in order to manipulate the British into thinking he's an actual defector. And so he has layers to his performance and he is in every sense, detestable. He's detestable, even if he's a genuine defector, and he's he's detestable because he's, you know, actually just manipulating uh, British intelligence. And to see him just sort of squirm and be cowardly, he he's an easy person to hate. And it, it's great to see him. And, it, and we know he's also manipulating Kara, who we kind of in- immediately have affection for. Uh, yeah. So he, yeah. So it's um. But I do think. The film does suffer a little bit of the octopus syndrome in that the plot of the villains is pretty convoluted, and you you kind of lose it in all of the arms deals and it's exchanging diamonds for heroin, and then there's the white snow leopard clan who's then buying the arms from Whitaker, but then uh, John Reese Davies is all is canceling his deal from from Whitaker, and so like it makes sense when you like draw it out. But it takes away some of the menace that the 1000000s you're you're expecting from a a Bond and a nemesis. Yeah, this is this last time I've
0: watched it is conservatively the twentieth time I've seen this yeah. movie, uh, you know, over my life, and I'm still. Each time I watch it, I still have to rem- remember and like figure out what yeah. all the, yeah. what the whole setup is, <laughs> and again, I can see how people would kind of criticize the movie for that. But at the same time, I, again, I feel like this is how real world bad guys function. You know, they make things yep. so convoluted and they hide lies within lies and, you know, uh, false fronts with, uh, on top of false fronts, you know, they just make it as convoluted as they possibly can, um, so nobody can. So there's no trace, you know. So people can't can't follow them. And again, this is just like the cowardly way of of being a villain in the real world is to you know do everything from behind the scenes. Um, but kudos to, to Dalton's Bond for figuring it out. And you know, I mean, maybe he just saw the fugitive, so he knew not to yeah. uh, <laughs> not to trust <laughs> Yon Krabbe. But um, Whitaker, played by Joe Don Baker, as the arms dealer is another thing that's often criticized in this movie. Um, but I like him. I always, I always thought he was good. Um, again, as sort of a weirder villain, you know, sort yeah. of someone who's got his little hobbies. Apparently, I read somewhere that he was based on um, one of Cubby Broccoli's friends. John John Glenn is telling this anecdote. He was like, yeah, we went to this billionaire's mansion one day, and I was hoping that the next line would be, and he had all these... Mannequins of himself as Hitler and uh, and Napoleon. <laughs> uh, but of course, what he said was he had all of these setups with soldiers and he was reenacting famous battles like Waterloo and uh, Pickett's Charge and doing them the way he would do them. So that's where that kind of yeah. idea came from. Uh, and these kind of eccentric, weird things added to the character, I think, uh, make him perfect. And like Koskoff, he's just this total fraud, you know, a guy who tells everybody that he's, you know, the soldier of fortune. When in fact he's only worked with mercenaries and he's never actually done any military service in his life, um, but he's all he's all brass, you know. He's all look at my cool toys, look at my technology, uh, and there's nothing of substance to him at all. And it's just the kind of guy who you're like, this is the exact opposite of Bond, who is you know nothing, he was nothing but action and nothing but like you know can definitely step up to any challenge. Uh, these guys who are all all bluster and all
1: talk. And are just the kind of guys that bond you be taken down, you know yeah, yeah, it's easy again another easy person to hate uh international arms dealer who 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 absolutely like as honorable Unless as members of the military. Yeah, oh, yeah yeah <laughs> um but but um rich people who do illegal things also are into some weird shit, like one of the more Recent examples is that Alex Rodriguez apparently has a painting of himself as a centaur hanging above his bed. Like, <laughs> when you get oh, dear, into man. to that level of wealth, you, you get some real stupid ideas. Uh, so this stuff tracks, and I love that image of Whitaker with that twenty five like, pound lobster in front of him when him and Koskov and Necros are just lounging in like in his villa, and and Necros I think. He could have been just another blonde Superman character, but I think um, the actor playing him has gives him some real character, and and also there's some goofiness to him too. Like he, he you know, he strangles people while listening to The Pretenders. <laughs> I don't know if if like if Kansas or Yes or Fleetwood Mac also get him to a murdering mood. If it's just Pretenders, just that um, one song. Yeah, bro. just that one song over and over again. Uh, he has exploding milk bottles. Um, He looks great in a Speedo. Uh, Yeah, so I think Necros is a fantastic henchman. And I don't mean to skip to the end, but the fight him and James have uh, on the cargo net of the C-130 is one of my all-time favorite stunt sequences. It's It's outstanding and terrifying. Because the stuntman B.J. Worth, who was doubling for Timothy Dalton in that scene... He, he had to just let go on more than one occasion because the netting that he was hanging on to would eventually bounce so high that he would risked hitting his head on the plane, therefore knocking himself unconscious and he would plummet to his death. So he'd have to. So for safety's sake, he had to <laughs> jump out of an airplane so he would be conscious to uh, extend his parachute that's a, I mean that's yeah a, <laughs> for so we could have a cool stunt in the movie
0: wow hopefully James Bond does it I love it and I just watched the opening of uh, Dark Knight Rises you know and the kind of soundstage plane crash at the beginning of that movie yeah so we played stunts and it's just like you can't you can't go back to those days anymore it's just yeah. amazing um but yeah Necros is is such a funny character goofy character because on the one hand you know he's hanging out at Whitaker's and he's in the pool with all the lovely ladies and he's definitely living it up with his pals. But then he gets out and they're talking business and he's suddenly like, I have revolutionary friends that I need to fund. Yeah. (laughs) And he has this political agenda all of a sudden. And it's like, go back to sipping your martini, you weenie, you know, like you don't (laughs) actually have a
1: political ideal in your body. But he also has that great fight in the kitchen with just another intelligence agent who's played by a stuntman named Bill Weston um but it's one of the it's the best fight in the movie and it's with another character and you know they use a character
0: that, yes a fight that Bond yeah. is not involved with at all
1: yeah, yeah. It, but it's very 80s and that we use like a a motorized <laughs> turkey carver uh <laughs> and and uh, and you know boiling water and stuff it's it's a great. It's a great fight, and I'm, I'm glad we got enough room in the movie to, just ha- to have those characters, you know, have it out.
0: Yeah, I'm always wondering about the agent that Weston plays, like, thinking I hope he's okay. Like, he was yeah. really holding his own against that guy. He yeah. got his face burned a little bit, but, like,
1: he lived, right? So. Yeah, and I think that that scene works so well because you expect that no-name agent to just get killed in two seconds. Yeah. And so every second after that is like an additional surprise and like an additional bonus action sequence. Uh, so I think that's what Living Daylights gives us. It's, it does unexpected things with the
0: franchise. That's great too because, you know, when we see all these guys getting popped off, these random people in Bond movies, this gives us an idea like, no no if you're a british agent like you are top of the line you know yes. you're somebody who can hold his own so that when uh, at the beginning sanders says to bond uh he's under the impression that you are the best you know yeah it's like bond is the best of like an elite team who are all excellent and the yeah. guys uh gibraltar too you know the guys that he's doing the um training mission with at the beginning uh you know it's like these this is the elite team bond's part of it and he's probably the best of them uh makes you kind of appreciate that bond can do these things that we see him do in this movie more
1: so and, i like yeah. that about it too and speaking of saunders he's one of my favorite allies because he has an actual character arc like he's not a bad guy he's just somebody who likes doing things by the book doesn't delay meeting with contacts so he can have sex with a woman he he does his job and so initially he's pretty put off by james bond but he comes to see that james bond is an accomplice agent who's just as dedicated to his job as he is and we're sad when he dies it's really devastating and we can understand why james kind of wants revenge for what happened to sam to saunders and it's a great performance from a fellow Shakespearean actor uh who is and it's great to see you know these these two guys who you know could have been doing hamlet uh like the week before do this fun spy movie together
0: yeah that's
1: great he's very good and the
0: and the arc that you're talking about too works so well because um because of that change they made to the short story where Sanders uh, you know tells him like i've got to write you up bond like you killed that girl cuz she was cute you know which in the story is kind of true uh but here it's that you know he finds out eventually that bond was right in his assumption that she you know was being used and she actually was not going to shoot Koskoff. Uh, i love that and it they were originally going to have a line after sanders is cut in half by the doors uh where Bob was going to uh, someone's going to come out and say we need a stretcher, and Bob was going to say better make that too, and they yeah. they smartly cut that out, yeah, because it's so much cooler when you know uh, Kara says, "Did you hear from him?" and he says, "From Yorgi. and then that turned to the camera and says, "Yes." Oh man, just that icy line reading is, you know, that it's 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 going down now. It's terrific. Um, the three action scenes, the three main main action scenes, other than the. um, one without bond that we were just talking about obviously the the prologue uh with the jeep and um then the um the chase in the snow yeah uh in the aston martin and then the big the the huge extended finale with the airplane um but uh you brought up recently um, the complaint that you know these serious bond movies aren't fun And obviously the snow scene is nothing but fun. And again, it's being made by the same guys who did the last three fun Bond movies. So obviously it's going to be a great innovative action scene.
1: Yeah. I, I love, um, I admit when I first saw this one, I was probably, um, I was probably in college. And so I was prime, like I'm too cool for school, cinephile stage, you know? And so I, the, the wheel, the bare wheel, carving a a hole in the ice probably made me roll my eyes because you know the the wheel is like the the blade on the wheel is only like an inch thick but it carves like a two foot (laughs) slice of of ice in a perfect circle like like it was like Bugs Bunny is sawing a a circle around Elmore Fudd like just perfect um But but that's so much fun. I love the cutting a, a car in half with a laser. That's great. And anytime Bond shoots missiles out, out of the, the front of an Austin Martin, I am there for it. Uh, Absolutely. And, oh, yeah. A fishing shack explodes for no reason. This is fun <laughs> as hell. And it has and that, that, great,
0: um, that great Bond moment where, you know, he does this amazing stunt and then the other car behind him tries to do it and fails yeah, miserably, yeah. you know, just like falls over and crashes and blows up.
1: And even, and even at the very end uh, when the sort of uh, immigration gate is down and Bond and Kara slide under it in the cello and Bond tosses the cello above it the man tried to do that several times then Timothy Dalton said oh I'll have a go and did it in one take so all praise to Mr. Dalton for that professional professional, and that
0: works you know that was a John Glennon uh, invention them sliding them sliding down mm-hmm. the cello uh, case he had to convince broccoli who like gave like a like thumbs down yeah. when he first came up with it by taking him over to an actual orchestra opening up a cello case and the two of them got in just to prove that two people could fit into a cello case on either side of it um and he made it work you know yeah. it, i i admit if someone if i was the producer of this you know huge franchise and someone said they slid down a hill on a cello case i would think get the fuck out of here with that. Yeah. That's terrible. Uh, but Glenn knew what he was doing and that is s- such a fun sequence. Um, made it even more fun because of the great chemistry between Dalton and uh, Miriam Diabo, uh, who you already mentioned, is very easy to uh, fall for playing Kara. Uh, she's a great performance. She's a strong female lead. with a. Com- she has a compelling arc. Uh, you know, She starts as this pawn, but by the end, she's really stepped up her action game. You know, That great yeah. moment where she pulls out the gun when then everyone's you know too afraid to go after the save Bond, you know, and she rides off. Is just one of the best moments of the movie.
1: <laughs> yeah, I agree. I I, I do a love her arc, and I, I like at the end we get to see her, you know, be the, the star of the show. Uh, and yeah, you know, speaking of tone of the movie, there was a proposed action scene or or even filmed, I think. Of a quote-unquote magic carpet escape uh, for for Timothy Dalton when they're in Tangiers, like he he would oh, put man. up a he would put a carpet like in between two clothing lines and like slide down it, and of course there'd probably be some awful like Middle Eastern music playing while that happened. Um, so, so that was cut. <laughs> so good, you do see a little bit of like struggle with tone in the movie because like at the beginning action scene you know timothy dalton kind of shrugs off the bond james bond line which at the time he got a lot of criticism for because this is serious and we have to we're two agents were just murdered right in front of me and then immediately he says oh better make that two hours so you can have sex with this random one on a boat <laughs> so there's these holdover moments that people are expecting from Bond that are still in there that timothy Dalton has to play and i think the movie does it well and the they're integrated into the story but i think it put people off a little bit but then again like drastic shifts in tone are kind of par for the course for james bond movies like it, they've been doing that since at least goldfinger so i think those criticisms while like valid, if this was any other action movie, I think were unfairly heaped upon Timothy Dalton at the time.
0: Uh, yeah, I agree. I think um, I, th- I think because again, this is sort of the same reason as that he could play the serious scenes so so well. I think he plays the comedic scenes well as you know at the yeah. same time. And maybe it's not as natural for him as it was for more maybe not even Connery. Um, but I always like this little moment. Gets me every time, makes me laugh every time, which is that uh, uh, when they get to Vienna and, and she hands him the, the cello and says to him, careful with the cello. And then he hands it to a porter and says, careful to the guy, you know, yeah, yeah. like with a little sigh in his voice. Moments like that are really nice, you know? Um,
1: and, and I love, yeah, you know, when, they, when they get to the hotel in Vienna, the, the clerk, who knows? And I, that's something that always gets me when the hotel clerks know who James Bond is. Ah, Mr. Bond, welcome back. Um, when he says uh, a martini, and then Timothy Dalton says shaken, not stirred. Like that's one of my favorite "shaken, not stirred." But just it's because you can tell that there's a history and a rapport between Bond and this guy who works at a hotel, and that that really charms me.
0: Absolutely, I love the reading of the line by Dalton. I don't think anyone says "shaken, not stirred" better than he does. Yeah, and he's got his he's got his own suite at the hotel. They're expecting. Yeah. (laughs) Um. I, I, one thing I, I I realized watching it this time that is sort of uh, unsaid, but I one thing I really appreciate about the Bond films is that they don't put titles up to tell us where we are, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, like you see in so many movies where it's like you see the Kremlin and it says Moscow or whatever. Or like idiots, yeah. Right, yeah, exactly. Um I, I i kind of appreciate that the bond films you know give their audience you know give their audience the benefit of the doubt you know you have to keep up and be like oh wait where are we now i gotta you know make sure i know where we are but i like that you know it doesn't that's just like a small thing that i think that mm-hmm. i like that they do that you don't see a lot in action movies like this um so yes bond teams up with the uh, moja dean in this uh film and yet it's a terrorist act against the Russians. So at least there are complexities there, you know, uh, Bond disapproves of the dope dealing that they, um, used to buy the arms, but we still have the, um, Oh, we had some trouble oh, at the end. I'm thinking at the very end of the movie when they, uh, they come into the, or- uh, orchestra and he says,
1: we had some trouble at the airport. Yeah. as <laughs> a line that has not aged very well. Like it, at the time, it's a great line because they're decked out in like bandoliers and AK 47s. Right. Uh, but yeah, it, in retrospect. But I mean, in this movie, I don't think this is an inaccurate representation of the Mujahideen in the same, at least in the way Bond movies are relatively accurate in the way they represent the KGB or, you know, British intelligence because they're a, you know, down and dirty a guerrilla force fighting the soviet union who are not above using profits from heroin dealing to fund their um insurgent operations like that's pretty much who the mujahideen were like mm-hmm. we're not in rocky ter- rocky three um, rocky three uh, rambo three territory here yeah. mm-hmm. so um and and yeah and like the real mujahideen a lot of their leaders were educated in the west and went back to afghanistan to fight just like in in this film yeah uh so it, it's it's not it's a reminder of how much the west screwed the pooch in afghanistan and how we wasted an opportunity so it, what rather than like um a rose tinted glasses of of the way F- the afghan the afghan war was
0: yeah yeah no, that's interesting to think about, you know. Other than the idea that it's a different time, yeah. like you said, kind of an alternate history where, you know, we can uh, get people like that on our side rather than <laughs> make them hate us worse yeah. than anybody could ever possibly hate us. Um, what else? Uh, well, our Malik is very good as uh, Cameron yeah. Shaw. I think, uh, and again, he gets some good, funny moments. I like that he's sort of posing as a peasant in this jail. You know, when they, they come and save them, and then it turns out that they unlock the head of the, yeah. <laughs> of the whole operation. That was lucky. Um, oh, you know what? We got to go back to Necros real quick because I just got to say one thing I noticed uh, was um, that, that that that's also bullshit, you know, that, you know, on top of the living in the lap of luxury, but claiming that, you know, I have comrades juggling for world revolution. Um, he, he at one point says, I only kill professionals, right? Mm-hmm. Who do we see him kill? A milkman, a cook, yeah, a maintenance man at the conference in Tangier. Bullshit! You don't kill professionals. You kill innocent yeah. people. He's almost like um, Red Grant's background in the From Russia with Love novel is that he's a, basically a serial killer. You yeah. know, like he's just murdering women uh, with cold, you know, indifference. And I feel like he's basically that character. He's just a guy who murders people for no reason.
1: Uh, as long as he's got the, the pretenders on the, uh, the walk. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, his, his, the name Necros, it's like you expect him to be the God of death or something. He's, he's not a, a normal dude. No, no. <laughs> Very least. He's like a, a slightly more real deal version of yeah. the phony diehard, uh, terrorists. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Which he, um, he wasn't diehard. He was the, the guy, uh, ho, ho, ho. Now I have a machine gun guy. That's right. I forgot about that. You're absolutely right. Um, what else?
0: What else should we talk about? This is such a good movie, John. I really love this film watching it this time. What I went away with. And again, it kind of speaks to the, uh, these, these real life villains being cowards and, and hiding behind lies. It is so, so satisfying to see smarmy, oily, Yurgy Kursk- uh, Kuskov get his due in the end, you know? To have Pushkin yeah, walk in and, and send him to Siberia
1: or wherever he's going, you know. I do wish there was a better explanation of how he's alive <laughs> because a plane crashes into his Jeep in a inner <laughs> fireball to, in a moment, yeah. right?
0: Where he's like, he's in this, he's like, why the coyote with like this, you know,
1: this Jeep on fire still holding the wheel and is able and to he, he comes of off vaguely singed whereas the two pilots of that plane are dead <laughs> I, yeah but it's it's all to it's also we get to see um john reese davies uh put in the diplomatic bag which is a, a great moment
0: excellent line reading fake assassination in this movie that's a lot of fun um don't know about the members only jacket bond is wearing in the scene yeah uh you know they can't all be winners. um He's, he looks great in pretty much everything else. Yeah. The leather jacket and uh, and the tuxedo, of course, we already discussed. Um, like I said, you know, in 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 an, in an age where it just seems like corrupt people are just getting away with everything, it's good to see a movie where James Bond puts an end to that shit. You
1: know? Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, which so it so it totally holds up to this day. Um, you know, I brought up the members only jacket, and my wife said, you know, it's the '80s, and it's like, well. Wow. there's two different kind of 80s you know (laughs) there's an 80s that could still hold up it's combat casual (laughs) and then lighter's got like a windbreaker on yeah um what are you gonna do um so yeah so so this is so yeah so living daylights Huge huge thumbs up for me. I love this one so much. Uh, anything else you had to, to to say about it? Or you want to move on to License to Kill? I'm, I'm all set for License to Kill. Let's talk about License to Kill, 1989. Um, with Bond getting revenge, right? Digging those two graves himself. Um, yeah. Apparently, you know, he does not practice what he preaches. Uh, Felix Leiter uh, gets fed to a shark. Uh, his wife is killed. And I guess the first thing I just want to talk about um, because while License to Kill is not one of my all time favorites necessarily I always have a fun time watching it it's, yep. it's a real comfort Bond movie for me uh, I know it so well and again it's the first one I saw in the theater so it obviously made a big impression on me but just this time watching it I tried to like analyze this is what happens over the space of a single wedding ceremony and reception okay hit me Bond and, Bond and Felix go after Sanchez in the Caribbean catch him parachute to the church Sanchez is interrogated by uh, Killifer. Killifer visits the wedding while somehow arranging Sanchez's escape. Uh, The plan to break Sanchez goes over flawlessly and the first thing Sanchez decides to do with his freedom is get revenge on Felix so that he shows up by the end of the reception in person just as Bond (laughs) is leaving. This has got to be the longest wedding in history. Let me tell you. They fit a lot of stuff into the beginning of this movie over a period of what has to be six seven hours maybe yeah because even the, even the
1: travel through? time because they they capture him and then put him on the the causeway well, the, they they start on the causeway they capture him and then sanchez is put back on the causeway uh you know from the miami to, to the keys and that's when the escape happens and then sanchez has enough time to get extracted from the water you know get dry and then go back to miami so even just travel time is you know travel time alone you're not getting yeah yeah, no way no
0: way also you're telling me they send a helicopter to intercept felix on his way to his wedding just when they find out they might have a shot at sanchez but nobody bothers to tell him immediately when sanchez escapes yeah like you think that was news
1: that should get to him before sanchez does you know I th- it's they just wanted the idea of bond and felix parachuting into a wedding after accomplishing a mission so i think aesthetically it works but you know as with yeah. a lot of things in bond logically it, it doesn't fly very well e- even more so in this i think
0: um, the big thing here with this movie is that they clearly wanted to make a big change with Bond, right? They wanted mm-hmm. to kind of take him out of the usual formula. Uh, and he's definitely getting wedded to American action film uh, mentality even more so than the the, the previous John uh, Glenn films. Uh, so that you get the villain right off the bat. You know, you don't get a cold open that's completely unrelated that just kind of sets up the tone and the mood. Yeah. It goes right into the story. You know, they have to establish... Uh, Felix and Bond's friendship and, you know, what's going to mean for Bond to have his friend, uh, this happen to his friend. Um, if you ask me, it could have worked just as well, although I'm just kind of throwing this out there. Have Felix and Bond work together on a totally different mission pre-credits, right? Um, you can even keep in the script that they capture some dude together, whatever you want to do, and they can even parachute down to the wedding. You can do all that stuff. But then let's cut to after the credits, months later, where yeah. the f- lighters have been married for a while and then we introduce Sanchez and he comes and gets his revenge works pretty much the same without having to kind of condense all this stuff into, you know, what would be a completely inexplicable short amount of time. Yeah, so and, maybe it could have worked. I don't know. And for,
1: for me, I, I, I love the friendship between Bond and Felix in this movie, but it's, New to, to their dynamic, because hmm. we see them like be chummy on missions and and things uh, they they trust each other, they help each other get the job done, but especially because just two years before it was a totally different actor playing a very different Felix, it seems like there's a missing story here like I would have liked to have seen like i guess if I was to write a bond, it would be about how they became best friends, like how maybe they sort of manipulated the you know, their respective many pennies to get them assigned to the same city at the same time. Maybe they each had a like a two week long stakeout in, in Morocco uh, where they could each sort of power around a drink together. And they were each other's like one voice of comfort and sanity in the insane world of uh, international assassination and grew to have this actual friendship and rapport in an industry um built on mistrust and murder. Uh, but we don't really get that. We're just kind of thrown into the fact that these are lifelong friends. Then they are so dedicated to each other that um, Felix's wife seems to also be in love with James. Like she's, like she is pretty eager to kiss him as soon as she sees him. Uh, and and I would have liked to have seen maybe a reason why there's that such deep affection between the three of them, really.
0: yeah. I guess, you know, they, this was kind of impossible because they kind of planned these things out movie by movie. Um, if they could at least have had David Hedison as Lighter in Living Daylights to establish, yeah. you know, an early, you know, sense that these guys have this rapport together, maybe that would have been something. Uh, as it is, they, there's just too much to do in the beginning of this movie to kind of establish yeah. all the characters and what the stakes are and why Bond would throw everything away to go after this guy who hurt his friend. So with that, I'm going to ask you, John, uh, the the big question, did they kill the golden goose with this film by merging Braun with American action sensibilities? Did he become too bland? Did they lose a little bit of the flavor with
1: license to kill? I mean, because I didn't grow up watching like eighties action TV, like, Miami vice or a team or stuff for me, when I first saw this film, this stuff wasn't as cliche for a lot of people probably saw it in the theaters. Like I of course recognize that like the end chase sequence with the semi trucks is like an attempt to merge road warrior with Raiders and, and you know, it's all stuff we've really seen before. Um, but the, a lot of the eighties cliches didn't hit as hard with me as it might've been for, for people who were like a, a generation older than me. So for me, I don't think it killed the the golden goose. Um, but for people who are familiar with those tropes of like, oh God, another drug dealing story in Miami, mm-hmm. that's not what I come to bond for. So I understand that criticism uh, heartily, but it just didn't affect me the same, it, it, the same way it did for other people.
0: Yeah. It's a, it's, it's a complaint that I understand. Yeah, I mean, even the Michael Kamen music sounds like it belongs in a Lethal Weapon. Yeah. more than James Bond.
1: Yeah, um, I would have loved like for Vince Dicola to score this movie instead. Like, I would have loved some. Like, he did um, Rocky Four and the Transformers animated movie, so I, I would have loved to have seen him have a crack at this because Michael was, Kamen really does. Was he in line to possibly do it at one point. Or no, you know? I would just, I would just, <laughs> I just love the Transformers movie a lot. So yeah, I'm yeah. like, <laughs> um, but yeah, I think. Uh, after two really strong, exceptionally strong scores, I think, by John Barry, I think A View to a Kill is one of his, one of his strongest. And then I really like what he did with uh, Living Daylights. Um, yeah, I think Living Daylights, in terms
0: of score, might be my favorite. Oh, Wow. Uh, I really like that score a lot. And I like that he's got the cameo at the end to kind of send them yeah, off. Yeah, that,
1: I think that's wonderful. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think in contrast to the previous two John Barry efforts, uh, I think the scores were really lacking. Yeah, for sure.
0: Um, but we should also mention, I mean, just in context, I mean, why this fell out. License to Kill was the lowest uh, the <laughs> lowest achieving Bond film in history by pretty much any account, you know, by any way you measure it up. Uh, it was the least successful. Uh, but this is coming out summer of 1989, right? And we're talking, there's a new Indiana Jones movie. There's a new Star Trek movie, a new Ghostbusters movie. There's the first Batman film. There's a new Karate Kid. There's a new Lethal Weapon. There's um, uh, a new Friday the 13th and a Nightmare on Elm Street. I mean, they're going franchise crazy in this particular summer. And I think it was probably one of the first summers to have that many sequels, like stacked up one after another. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then of course you throw in like, honey, I shrunk the kids and um, weekend at parties and the, the abyss. I mean, there were a lot of just huge movies. So I could see how the bond film would definitely kind of get buried underneath all of that. Um, but in terms of, you know, kind of changing up the formula, uh, I wouldn't say the criticisms are wrong. I don't know if they're entirely, it, it, I don't know if it means anything. You know, I don't think that Bond himself loses the identity. And I think the main reason is because of Dalton. I think, you know, Dalton really jumped into this film uh, with both feet. You know, he's, you know, he sets the tone for it early on. When he comes and discovers Felix, Uh, with that delicious Fleming note, he disagreed with something that ate him. Yeah, Um, You know, he sets the tone, you know, and and so you kind of follow Bond wherever he's going to go. And again, when he, I had said previously, Robert Brown is sort of like the uh, angry chief, you know, of the, uh, of the M's. Uh, And it works perfectly here because Bond literally throws his badge at him and says, you know, well, I'm out. And he says, well, you know, screw you, Bond. And, you know, runs off. Uh, on his own personal mission. But again, that's the, sort of the, the, the Timothy Dalton bond way to say, I'm, I'm not doing this for queen and country. This is, for, you know, this is something because I have to do because there's something wrong with the world. This guy keeps getting, you know, this guy buys his way to freedom and he is murdering, you know, left and right. Yeah. You gotta put an end to it. That's very much in keeping
1: with the bond that we meet in the living daylights. And I think in the 80s, At least as far as popular consciousness was concerned, you know, after Iran-Contra and Pablo Escobar, drugs were a geopolitical force more than they ever had been since, like, the Opium Wars. Like, they were forefront in the minds of international diplomacy, in the minds of the public. So if you're going to have a movie about an international secret agent, you – you're gonna involve drugs uh, and and the kind of people that are in that business are very different from the kind of people that like, you know general Gogol was in charge of uh, you can easily see how someone like you know uh, Benicio del Toro's character Dario send her on a nice honeymoon it's one of my favorite line ratings of the franchise oh, of course um, yeah why him or, or Sanchez would excel in this nefarious industry and and it's going to be a different kind of movie with those kind of people involved
0: yeah it's and you know a lot of accusations too of like over violence came to this movie i think is this the first one that's rated pg-13 am i right
1: in that i i think so
0: yeah um it's it's got some dirty stuff and not just you know felix and della what happens to them but when bad guys die screaming in agony it's yeah. unpleasant, you know. It's yeah. uh, it's not like you know Necro's falling off of, out of a plane, you know, where it's just kind of satisfying. Uh, here, when you know Milton Crest's head explodes, you know, in the uh, depressurizing, whatever that that thing is, it's kind of horrific. It's kind of horror movie esque, you know, yeah. in a
1: way that a lot of the Bond movies aren't. Yeah, Del Toro is ground up in a drug factory into yeah. red mist it's gross uh, exactly also, that's 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 yeah. a death
0: that you should have been rooting for from yeah. the minute you saw him yeah i hear him like screaming in agony as his legs are chopped into pieces yeah. like oh my god this is horrible <laughs> poor guy <laughs> poor drug dealing rapist
1: I have yeah. seen that. <laughs> um oh but uh sanchez has some great lines in this one just like oh, what do we do with the money launder it <laughs> yeah like he yeah um, robert davi is is a flat-out lunatic in real life sure. um he talked about like he, he he viewed this uh role as like richard iii um how like it, it's a serious hamlet. Um, he, he talked about like, oh yeah, uh, real people from South America would approach me and would be surprised that I'm not actually Colombian. Like, okay, yeah, sure. Uh, but <laughs> but I think he really sinks his teeth into this role and he's, he's somebody that you want to see dead by the end of the movie.
0: Oh, for sure. And he's got, as much as people say, he's just some drug dealer. He's not a blow fella, you know. He's not like trying to take over the world necessarily. It's like, he's well, he's taking over a country. He, kind of is. He, he owns a country and he's got, you know, his little iguana, you know, that he likes to stroke. I mean, he makes this role as much of a bond villain as I'd say any of the ones from the eighties, as much as, you know, yeah. uh, Drax or Stromberg or, yeah. you know, I don't, yeah, or If, if Yassir is a bond villain,
1: villain, then, then so is Dobby. Yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 For sure. Dobby's great in it. Um, I was going to mention to Lisa Soto, of Spike and Bensonhurst, you know, Try not to get you know too crude when we're talking about these bond films but holy smokes just what a phenomenally great looking woman and just yeah uh, uh you know uh
1: just great <laughs> just, just a nice addition to this film yeah and uh, i i really love uh carol Lull as as a uh, Pam bouvier um and i like the gag that her, <laughs> her bond gives her a fake name of kennedy but um I think it's a great contrast to uh it's So, you know, um Pam is a a CIA agent. She has, you know, her own job to do. She wields a shotgun in that aqua roadhouse bar in the in the beginning. Um I but I think my my biggest criticism of the movie is the way the romance plays out. Um yeah, between the two because we see how strong Pam is, but then almost immediately her and Bond sleep together on on a boat, and then you know after the a, after the got very the adrenaline mon- of the bar fight left it. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Can blame him. <laughs> and then after the, the the very monogamous bond of Living Daylights, here he very soon sleeps with Lupe, and then there's that very strange sort of like love triangle thirty second scene at the end where. Like Pam immediately forgives Bond for for seducing this woman, and they jump in a pool together. So I, yeah. I wish that there was no romance between him and Pam Bouvier before the very end, because I think it sort of diminishes her character a little bit to have like sort of given into Bond's charms almost immediately, yeah. and then there's because then afterwards this this sort of specter of jealousy between the two women and for a movie like this you know this serious this violence and in 1989 not 1969 i think that that drags it down a little bit
0: yeah i agree that that element of it definitely could have been cut out almost entirely um and still still worked because that movie is a cool character you know definitely yeah. someone who was very independent um did not need didn't didn't need to happen uh, one thing, though, that gets criticized a lot in this film that I have absolutely no problem with personally. Curious to hear your thoughts on it is Wayne
1: Newton. <laughs> uh, I like him. Yeah, that shit is bonkers, but I love it. Uh, I, it's something. It's a Bond has a history of doing things for stylistic reasons that have no logic that overcomplicate things, but are just cool to see. He's the um, James and, scene of the movie. Yeah, and. <laughs> You know, corrupt TV televangelists were in the cultural zeitgeist in the late 80s. -hmm. And for them to be put on the same villainous pedestal as international drug dealers, I'm here for it. Stick it to these bastards. Um, And so for for Wayne Newton to just be a pawn to drug dealers, I think I, I get a real kick out of that. And I like the fact that they're operation is so efficient that even his scheme to publicize drug prices is now making a profit. Uh, it, and it, it speaks to the corruption in every corner of society at the time. Yeah. And
0: Bond is very efficient at that In that climax of suddenly taking away everything that's working for him. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Burning down this phony set and, you know, uh, blowing up his drugs and his, you know, using up his stingers he really does to manage to bankrupt this guy pretty yeah. effectively, just by uh, uh, throwing throwing some
1: fire at uh, some gasoline. And uh, one of the best um, that facility at, at the end, uh, one of the best uses of, of four guy miniatures that I've ever seen is when the Sanchez's helicopter lands and the the ground of that like Mayan or faux Mayan ruin lifts up. Oh yeah. It was the Atami ceremonial center in Toluca, Mexico. Uh, and it, it lifts up to allow the, uh, helicopter to land underground. And that's a testament to, uh, Peter Lamont and John Mm -hmm. Richardson for, for doing that effect. It's absolutely seamless. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. And it's one of those things where you never would realize it was a special effect until it's pointed out to you. Yeah. Uh, It's fantastic. But, uh, going back though, to this, the action that's used in this movie, um, Again, you know, maybe it's Americanized. Maybe it's a little more explosion based than Bond usually is. Um, a little adrenaline pumping up kind of stuff, but I, I, it works for me. I think this is yeah. a really exciting movie. They have they have a lot of cool stunts. Uh, I had they have just the right amount of underwater action. I think Thunderball should take note of that. Yeah. Um, I love I love the sequence um, by the wave crest when when Bond. Uh, Scuba dives down during the drug deal that's happening underwater and destroys the drugs, and then manages to grab, has a fight with scuba divers, manages to grab the line or, sh- or shoot, shoot his uh, spear and get onto the back of the plane, ski behind the plane, catch up to the plane, beat up both guys and throw them out, and then fly away with all that money is just, it's awesome.
1: Yeah, <laughs> you know, I mean, this is really satisfying action. Yeah, that is a really great, great sequence and a real kind of like combination of of stunt sequences of going from underwater to the really cool um water skiing sequence to the actual stuntman hanging off of a plane as it takes off uh and and a really neat use of a block of money as as a way to dodge or block bullets yeah uh, yeah for me the action in this movie totally works
0: yeah 100 percent. and of course the very extended scene at the end where they're just hey let's throw a flaming car at a plane why not yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) i mean they really go all they really go nuts with it and you know this is of course john glenn's final film uh so why not go out you know with a freaking 18 wheeler going up on one end you know yeah (laughs) that's
1: just that's just fun and then there's a punctuation mark of it landing on another car and crushing it i think uh that's fantastic
0: yeah, yeah. No, there's anything they can they decide to throw in they are going to do it. Yeah. Um so you got Dalton to kind of levy things and keep things kind of grounded and keep the emotional sort of tone going uh and then you can just go wild. You can just throw as much action as you want. You can throw ninjas in there for no reason, yeah. you know.
1: That that actually does not work for me cuz uh, <laughs> A they're from Hong Kong and ninjas are not from China. <laughs> um, and and be, it's, it's another bit of way to make the plot more convoluted because there's already like half a dozen villains. And so to introduce this other element to it that's almost immediately killed off, I think is unnecessary. But on the other hand, it does provide an excuse for Sanchez to think bond is trustworthy because he sees that his enemy has now captured and tied up bond that might kill him. And so that makes Sanchez kind of take him into the fold. So well, you know, it's, it's an excuse to
0: put Haruki Tagao in this movie. Yeah. 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 yeah I'll,
1: I'll, yeah, I'll watch him in anything really.
0: When you throw him, throw him in there, you throw Grant Bush in there and even Brent Branscombe uh, Richmond gets, gets to get his ass kicked by Timothy Dalton at one point. I mean, these guys who were in Die Hard, Lethal Weapon, Mortal Kombat, Dolph Lundgren yeah. movies, Jeff Speakman yeah. movies, you know. Uh, so in a way, it's kind of like you know, if you're going to like bring a movie and really sell it to American audiences, like make it a movie that's like The Terminator or a movie that yeah. could specifically have John McClane in there, you know. Mm-hmm. So I am not, I'm not necessarily against that, uh, and that that aspect of it actually does work for me just fine. It's it's because it's an entertaining movie. Mm. Uh, maybe it doesn't you know have the substance that living daylights does because uh it is such a batshit crazy action movie the way it is um but again it's 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 never boring you know yeah it's certainly not yeah um what else what else do we have to say about license to kill um is it a little sitcom at the end when bond throws himself into the pool to uh win back pam it's a little rom com yeah
1: <laughs> Yeah, a little bit like as if um sleeping with another getting wet in a, in a well in a suit is enough to redeem yourself for sleeping with another woman. I don't know if I really buy that. But you know, I I guess I think what bothers me more in that scene is how chummy Bond and Felix are. Like Felix has just been horribly mutilated by a shark and his wife has been executed in front of them and he's like, "Hey Bond, uh, Want to go fishing when this is all wrapped up? Oh, sure, Felix. Like that, that stuff does not ring true to me, so I would have liked maybe a more serious send-off, especially because the movie begins with um, Della giving her garter to James and James becoming extremely dour and then Felix having to explain that he was married once who and his wife is now dead, and so I wish that sort of heaviness was afforded to Felix at, at the end of the movie. Uh,
0: yeah, I agree with that. They probably should have just kept him out of the movie entirely, rather than yeah. have him, you know, acting yeah. the same way he did last time we, <laughs> you know, we saw him. Yeah,
1: or maybe uh, if he, if Bond could have just visited him in the hospital, and Felix could have been like unconscious, so they have no interaction, but yeah. a, just one moment of tenderness between Bond and his like recovering friend.
0: Yeah, I no, I agree with you on that. Um, what do we think of the songs from these uh, two Dalton films, "Aha" and um, "Gloria Knight? What do we think?
1: Um, well, f- first, I, uh, I, sorry. Yeah, I think it's interesting that um, the versus phenomenon that has been going on social media lately. The, the most recent one was Gladys Knight versus Patti LaBelle. And Gladys Knight has the title song in in License to Kill. And Patti LaBelle has the end credits song, if you ask me to. Um, So, John, I think we were destined to talk about these two movies at this moment. We're (laughs) we're united to the universe via via these two uh, R&B legends. (laughs) Um, But I like these songs um, a, a lot. I know using "Aha." For Living Daylights is probably an attempt to recapture the magic of Vito Kill by Duran Duran. And it doesn't quite get there, but I still like the song a lot, especially John Barry's arrangement in, in the opening sequence. And
0: yeah, that's although, part of why the score works so well for me. I love yeah. how it's used throughout yeah. the film. Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah, I think John Barry is such an expert at integrating the, um, the theme into his score uh like just you know taking different like light motifs from from the from the opening title song and reminding us of it and adding some variation into into the score when you know we're always waiting for the james bond theme to punctuate the action and he's always finding ways to put variety in that and i I really appreciate that um nobody does it better absolutely yeah, yeah exactly uh and, and i'm glad that um we that they do try to change things up by using gladys knight so instead of trying to pick a a band that's you know of the moment you pick like a real like legend in in the industry to give some heft to, to the title song
0: yeah her and labelle sure they were yeah. uh, definitely anti-hip choices i think
1: yeah time. yeah um I-, I think unfortunately um in America, aha was at that point already a one hit wonder, but they were in Europe, they were still, you know, m- making hits. Uh, but I think American audiences were just not aware of that at the time. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. So
0: before we, uh before we sadly, you know, uh, close the door on, on the era of the Timothy Dalton era of uh, James Bond, uh, I would have loved to have seen portrait of a lady if that would have been the third movie. Yeah. Um, let me ask you this. What would you have thought if someone came and said, we can, we can move you over to a universe, John Arminia, where Dalton took over this role earlier and he was in all of the John Glenn movies that Roger Moore did, Live and Let Die Through Moonraker in the 70s, and then it was Timothy Dalton starting with For Your Eyes Only. What would you think about that? Um. Okay.
1: I don't know if well, I guess it wouldn't have been that early. Um, so yeah, maybe he would have been too young at that point. Uh, that that much earlier. Um, but but I mean I I love Roger Moore. Uh, I don't want to live in a universe where there's less Roger Moore movies. Fair I, I, I would I would love to live in a universe where there's more Timothy Dalton movies, but not less Roger Moore. Fair enough.
0: I I always seem I always see myself thinking of you know because. For Your Eyes Only was the first John Glenn, and it was the one that really, after Moonraker, grounded the action and made it more of a, a character study than the Bond films had been at that point. I always think of what Dalton would have done in that movie. Yeah. You know, it would have been, I could see him playing that role. I can see him with Carol Bouquet. I can really see him playing that. Not so much Octopussy and View to a Kill, mm-hmm. yeah. much less View to a Kill. I think that really is Roger Moore's movie 100%. But that is one for your eyes only. And again, I love for your eyes only. I love Moore's performance in For Your Eyes Only. Um, but I do like thinking about that alternative universe where maybe we got uh Glenn to direct Timothy Dalton in that movie would have been interesting for sure. But I appreciate I, your allegiance to yeah, Moore, though. Yeah. That was a trick question. Yeah. Um, great. So we've wrapped up Bond in the eighties. Um, a very cool and interesting era. Uh, I think, John, when we get back together to talk about the next series of Bond films, we might want to consider uh, two decades. Since they kind of get that long stretch of no Bond films, mm-hmm. it's really only five movies, uh, no, six movies between the, um, four Bros- the four Brosnan films and the first two Danny Craigs.
1: Mm-hmm. So we might want to think of a combination of that if you're interested. Yeah, and I think... Um... Quantum of Solace is another unfairly abused Bond movie and functions best as a direct sequel to Casino Royale. It's it's I mean we'll, we'll get into this but, but but I think that they're almost, you know, one story. Um, especially because Casino Royale has th- three or four endings uh, <laughs> as, as much as I as much as I love it. Um yeah, so yeah
0: figure I out a way to package it I mean we're three yeah. decades, four episodes in and we can't stop now, right we gotta go all yeah the way.
1: We, we gotta keep going and you know yeah I, I look forward to to get into those movies just because GoldenEye is the first bond movie I saw in theater so it's a special one for me um, yeah
0: yeah that was a uh, I mean that even even though it was uh, it felt like forever between license to kill and GoldenEye for me it was like a real arid desert. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, between those two films, uh, I still appreciated the kind of the impact that Goldeneye had when it came out and I yeah. saw that like new people were getting into the series and it was a whole new rebirth at that time. Whatever people think of the movie itself, it was definitely like a huge big event and definitely something that the Bond series needed at that time. So I will be curious to hear your thoughts on that. and I the look forward to it in general. Yeah. Absolutely, sir and have a wonderful night. Thank you, you too. Thank you, John.